Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. We have the privilege of talking with Boston Centerless owner and CEO Steve Tomasi today. Boston Centerless supplies precision ground bar materials and grinding services, specializing in extremely close tolerances. I've known Boston Centerless for years, and they are just a classy outfit, doing things right in a very tight margin business. What has really impressed me is the constant, sometimes very incremental steps of continuous improvement. They reinvest in all aspects of their company, and Steve has a really long-term view. So although you may be a CNC machining shop, milling shop, how Steve approaches running his company can be transferred to any shop. I also think the world is starting to come to them. You can buy bar materials with looser tolerances and deal with the variabilities looser tolerances cause, or you can buy from Boston Centerless and eliminate a variable. My approach has always been to eliminate variables so I can focus on controlling better the variables I can't eliminate. And I think that's where the world's moving. So we'll talk about some of that philosophy along the way. But now, let's get to it. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Steve. Thanks for having me, Jay. Excited to be chatting with you again. We were on the same panel recently for the NTMA Spring Conference, which was virtual. And what I thought was interesting there was the NTMA used software from a company called Verbella for the conference, and they created a virtual world. So it wasn't like Zoom. It was more like a video game where we each had an avatar or thinking from a gaming perspective, we each were a, a character inside a virtual conference center. We sat on a stage and you could see all the attendees in the audience and see them come in, see them leave, just like a real conference. It was still more cartoonish, 
but I, I like the sense of it. What were your takeaways? What did you think of that? I couldn't agree more. It gave you a sense of being connected a little bit more than just staring at people kind of across the screen. Yes. Um, you also can go up and, and have conversations with individual people. So it was more per- personal touch. I think we, we hear a lot about virtual reality. And once the virtual reality goggles get integrated into a world, I think it really makes a lot of sense for Again, what we just did, but also probably training and other aspects of interacting virtually as opposed to the Zoom, which I don't know about you, but I've had Zoom fatigue over the last year. Yeah, I would definitely agree. The panel was convened to talk about ways that shops can make money in 2021. And for our audience, where do you think the opportunities for shops to make money is this year? Well, I think we're entering a relatively unprecedented time of opportunity. Uh, Coming out of the pandemic, there's pent up demand and understanding where the needs are and and how the supply chains are working. I think you can anticipate where those opportunities are going to be and be prepared. So we've taken the approach that we don't want to miss those opportunities through lack of preparation and investment and both infrastructure, plant, equipment, but also from personnel standpoint. We don't want to leave things to chance or run cautiously. I do think that we've got some runway ahead of us here that if you can take advantage and put the, the necessary strategic steps in place, there's a lot of business to be had. I think turnaround, reliability uh, has always been important, but it's even heightened in this type of an environment that we're in right now. I want to definitely dive into some of the ways that you are preparing for all of this, but I couldn't agree more. I think that things have changed. We're not going back to the way it was before, and there is a lot of opportunity, and it's not going to go away by the end of the year. I think we've got through 2022 at least to be able to reap some reward for investments we're putting in place. Before we get into a lot of that stuff, though. I think something that really encompasses a lot of who Boston Centerless is, is through a program that you offer called Swiss Assist. What is Swiss Assist and why do you offer it? When we look at our business, we truly are in the business of trying to make our customers better at what they do. And we think our products have spoken for that over six decades and really allow opportunities to build efficiencies into the operation, which we potentially get to later. But mm-hmm. we also found that because we've practiced a lot of that, being a manufacturer, working in lean manufacturing before it was called lean manufacturing, starting our journey in 1995, for instance, we understand what it takes to run the business. And then also being in the business of supplying bar for so long, we want to be able to help our customers improve their processes. And so we offer a service that is geared towards the work that they're doing in their plants. So a lot of our bar material, of course, goes into Swiss type screw machines mm-hmm. and understanding how to take advantage of the precision and the lack of variability that we can provide, but also understanding that in, in talking with a lot of customers, they buy new equipment, they get a couple weeks training, but they're kind of left to their own devices. And so if we can bring expertise in, and sometimes it's in the form of training, sometimes it's in the form of programming, if they need additional support and they're overloaded, and then obviously troubleshooting jobs. And it might include improving the input material, but it might not. And our goal is to help them 
improve their processes because we develop a relationship where they can trust that what we're doing is really in their best interest. A lot of what you're imparting is knowledge that you have as a company carefully gathered and curated over the years. And many shop owners would hold this knowledge tight and not share it, seeing that it's a competitive advantage. What I'm curious about is why you personally are so open to sharing and promoting getting this knowledge out. What drives you to do that? I think you touched upon some of it, but but personally, if you could get into that, how do you have that mindset? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because I'm a second generation owner. My dad started the business. And when I started to work full time in the industry, I started going to local chapter meetings and some national meetings through a couple of associations that we belong to. And I really took away this mindset that I wanted to be part of the solution. And I I really felt that the only way to advance the ball for our own company was to try to advance it to the broader industry, the industry as a whole. And so I spent a lot of time working on promotion and recruitment and attracting people into the manufacturing industry, not necessarily for our company. And kind of that mindset is just how we approach business. We do and have created a lot of training materials internally here that people could uh, look at and say, well, geez, you know, we're training people. And I've heard this many times to go down the Mm -hmm. street. And I just feel like if you are creating an environment that it has opportunity and it's a good place to work and people are respected. So the cultural aspects kind of get woven in that, you know, at the end of the day, maybe there are some people that choose that path, but the majority of people are going to want to stay and grow in that type of a company. So it's a philosophy that permeates all aspects of the business. I definitely want to get into a lot of the specific things you're doing, but I enjoy that mindset because at Rapid, we would open up our shop once a year for an open house to not only people in the community, but for the team members, families. And we had competitors, if you will, I'll put that in quotes, who would come in and sometimes they would say who they are, sometimes they wouldn't, but we would know who they are. And people at the company might say, well, why are you showing them everything we're doing here? And my view was, number one, that we were going to be so far ahead of where we were today by the time they implemented what they saw, but also that, second, it was a forcing function to make sure we kept improving, kept continually moving forward. And if we just stayed where we were, yes, they would catch us and they would grab some of that secret sauce and then we would not perhaps have the competitive advantage that we did. But that just was part of moving forward and saying, you guys, we want you to copy us because that'll make us be better because we know you're on our tail. And I I really, I like your way of looking at it there. Yeah, I have a funny little story to tell you about that. Uh, Sure. My dad started the, the business in, you know, 58, but he had grown it to the point where he needed to elevate himself to a position where he wasn't on the floor as much and had to bring other people in. And he had over, I don't know, the first, say, 10 years, 15 years or so, uh, a number of offshoots, people that had worked for him and went and started their own business, soundless grinding business to compete. Mm. And he, at one point, was really frustrated because customers would say, I can get it from the guy down the you know, street, one of his offshoots for you know, 50 <laughs> cents on the dollar. And so 
he called all of his competitors up, guys that had spurned him and everything, and invited them to come to the plant to take a tour. Because his philosophy was, if they see what I'm doing, they realize that there's more put into my business. It's not that all of this additional pricing is just margin. I mean, building in the quality by the way we set up the shop, the tools, how we treat people all the way down the line. And nobody came because they all were suspicious. What's he trying to do? And you know, He's going to pull something over on us. But that always stuck with me because his philosophy was, if I can lift them up to where I'm at, yeah. now we're on a competitive playing field. Yes. So taking some of those lessons from a wise man. Yeah. I'll just laugh. It's a little bit of an aside, but we used to have customers who would say, we got your quote and I can buy that part at 50% of what you're quoting me. And my response would be, and what I trained my estimator to be like, wow, that's great. Can you share the name of that shop? Because we'd love to buy parts from them and we could sell them at the price that we're quoting you because we have lots of customers. We'd make even more money than we. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We've done the same thing. Yeah, But obviously it's not apples and apples. Give us a little framework Tell us a little bit about Boston Centerless. So when we get into the culture and the things you're doing, we have an understanding of who you are as a company, your locations, the equipments, the number of team members, things like that. Currently, our main manufacturing facility is in Woburn, Massachusetts, and we have approximately 120 associates. We have a distribution center in Ohio, near Cleveland, and another one in Minneapolis. And we are looking to continue to expand. We want to be as close to our customer clusters as possible. Um, so we can provide next day delivery for their products. We have approximately 30 centerless grinders. We have multiple straightening machines. We have bar chamfering machines, cutoff machines, non-destructive testing machines. So our real approach is, and we've even backed up into the supply chain a little bit, but we want to provide raw material to component manufacturers, OEMs, and subcontractors that is completely finished in the sense that they can put it in the machine and press go. Mm -hmm. So any of the preparatory services that are required, you know, heat treating, and like I said, non-destructive testing, anything that they need to get it from one source. And they know it's kind of one neck to choke, as they say, we've Mm -hmm. done all of that running around and presenting them with a, a finished raw material product to them. So that's what we're doing right now. And then vendor managed inventory and supply chain management using the distribution centers. We want to make it as stress and pain-free as possible. Are you running seven days a week, three shifts? Tell me about the hours a little bit. Yeah. So we're running two long shifts, five days, and then we use weekends as overflow. We are contemplating right now adding a weekend shift to expand, but we find that we've got really good flexibility with the model that we have so that we can scale with ours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we get completely locked, we're, we're not able to flex to surges in demand mm-hmm. that we see in the marketplace. So we like to have some ability to do that. And we have expanded to a considerable amount of hours. We've got a very dedicated workforce that is willing to work 55, 60 hours a week when absolutely necessary. We try to keep it in the 45, you know, 47 hour range. So they still get some overtime, but that's, that's the model we're using right now. And we're looking at expansion beyond, you know, kind of this one main facility right now. The equipment you have, you've been doing this for quite a while. Have you modified what the manufacturers have 
produced and made it your own, done some little tweaks that allow you to do things perhaps that other shops can't do? That's a really interesting question because a lot of the machinery that we have is older vintages, but it has, we've got a prescription basically that we've worked through with a remanufacturer with very specific points and, and specifications in the machine that allow us to hold these tight tolerances. But then a lot of it really is knowledge-based. It's proprietary processing. It's how we approach things. And it's the skill level that we've built over these six decades that allow us to do some pretty amazing things with the equipment. So it's much more on the process side than it is built in the equipment, but you obviously have to have a certain caliber, you know, piece of equipment to even get to the start. Before the podcast, we were talking and you are adamant that culture is just the most important thing that it's embedded in the operating philosophy and the principles of Boston Center. You're known for the highest quality. Is that baked into the culture or, or is it the culture? It's one component. It's more of a result of the culture. It, it truly is an incessant attention to detail and wanting to do the best all the time. And so we've kind of communicated that, embedded that in the processes we recruit and evaluate employees based on these set of criteria that are baked into our core values, which help us produce that. And I think why I believe it's so important is I talked about flexibility. I talked about responding to surging demand or getting people that that are willing to step up and literally change hours on a 24 hour notice. And we didn't have that before, you know, we instituted and built this kind of culture. We don't have any issue with that right now, right? So that's a one from a demand standpoint. What we try to sell is the incredible consistency with which we produce our product and the reliability and what we stand behind that. And that doesn't just happen. That is a cultural thing. I want you to riff on this whole thing. Just lay it out. What do you do? What's your belief? You know, we truly look at it that we want 100% quality, right? And right now, what gets out the door is 0.2% of our sales is what our customers see. That's it. And in a lot of cases, and I'm not going to pass the buck entirely, but I would say that half of it is a material-related problem that stems from the mill. So, you know, and how we respond to that. So, we've got a really locked down procedure. That's where the training comes in. That's where documenting comes in. You're not, you're not leaving it to tribal knowledge to pass down through the generations or through the various experienced operators. We try to document that. We put it into these, what we call playbooks. So we have them for different functions in our shop and we really work towards standardization. All right. Finding the best practice, standardizing it, and then matriculating that across the entire organization. But our core values are put the team first, demonstrate excellence, take initiative, and be trustworthy, right? So when you put it together, it's tight. But there are meanings to that. And we train people as to what we mean. What does it mean to be trustworthy? Mm. Not just honesty or integrity. You've got to be competent. If people are going to trust you, it's no different. And I use the examples. I'm a big football fan. And I think there are a lot of analogies there. You know, the best example is a quarterback has a trust that the left tackle is going to block him, right? Right. So, His blind side. Exactly. And so we try to instill that. And I get out and I communicate on a regular basis, reinforcing this. We have 
programs in place where peer-to-peer recognition, we call it the golden bar award. Anybody that truly has a great example of lifting those core values up, you know, the person that blew off his day off to bring a product to a, a customer in Connecticut, they're just numerous examples. And we get other people to recognize their peers. And then we present that and we give them what we call BC bucks that they can return <laughs> for swag at our company store and gift cards to local stores. You got to have the programs and different tools in place to reinforce that. It's just, it can't just be a placard on a wall. So we literally do a lot to emphasize, reinforce, retrain those core values. And, and we say all the time, if we do those things, our customers are going to be satisfied. We're going to get more business. There's going to be more opportunity for you to grow. And professionally, personally, I could go on and on, to be honest. Well, I'm going to have you go on and on, but I have some specific questions on some stuff that you just sure. brought up. So number one, playbooks. When did you first start developing the playbooks? And do they change? How often do they change? The first real playbook we built was uh, about six, seven years ago. And we were growing rapidly, we're adding services, and I was going out, I believe it's important to go out and see customers. And so I try to get out with each of our field salespeople at least once a year, if not more. And, and I'd listen and one salesperson would say that we could do something mm-hmm. that we, <laughs> we weren't doing. The next one would say we can't. And, and I said, this is our fault that, you know, corporate, we're not communicating to them. Yep. Um, what the products and services are that we have in our portfolio, what they mean to the customer and how to go sell that. Mm -hmm. So the sales playbook was actually the first one that we built. And it was Uh, like having triplets. I mean, it was a colossal effort, but now that we've got the framework. So how many pages is it just written? Are there graphs? Are there illustrations? What, what does a playbook look above. like? There are, there are links to videos. There are links to PDFs and pages. It's on the cloud. You know, anybody mm-hmm. in the field can pull that up. The sales guys will say even 15, 20 year vets will pull down certain pages. Mm. They know a customer has a need for NDT, for instance, and they just mm. want to understand the specs and they can speak to it more intelligently when they go in there. We've got quizzes at every section when mm. they're first rolling it out. And it feeds back and we can see, and you can't go on to the next one until you get a certain one number right. And is that off the shelf software that you, for the quizzes that you, or do you? We we house it within SharePoint, but everything was built internally Mm. here. Okay. And I think the sales playbook is upwards of a hundred pages. Wow. It starts with some of the company history background and we just continue to build on that. That gets revised every six months. It's a living document. It's a living document. Exactly. Who owns that? That is our sales director and marketing director. They're a tandem in this. Mm -hmm. They collectively review it and then go out to ops or come to different people in the organization to ensure that the right information is in there. If we change something, we improve a capability or whatever. So there is a kind of a checklist they go through. So your playbook is all about standardization. It sounds like you have standardization on how you review your playbooks. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So it's a, it's a we, self, self-creating yeah. loop there. We have an internal system that we created that we use for all of our ISO documentation. We have a skills training mm-hmm. section on skills matrix with every person, what skill they have. This is all out on the floor. And I've seen so, that on your floor. That is really cool. Yeah. I, I like that. Yeah. So we have had that in place for 
a long time and had training manuals and everything. But where we took that philosophy on the sales playbook side, now we're bringing that out to the manufacturing floor and we're putting it in the same format and we've got mm. industry ready tablets. So mm. then we get new employees, we come in and they're all being trained and we've got a very prescriptive training plan. First week, this, second week, this, third week, this, because what we found is that, yes, we had all the training materials, but when it would be delivered and at what time would be different for every employee that came in. Guys get distracted, they forget, mm. you know, the trainers, whatever, they have other responsibilities. So now we've got, this is exactly how it's going to be handled with an onboarding situation. So once again, standardization, structure, the same thing every time, you know, and then constant review and revise and improve. And those are the models that we bring. So the onboarding, is that owned by HR or is it owned by the department that the person is coming into? It both. And when I say that is HR is very involved at the very front end in ensuring with the hiring manager that these things are being done. And there's also a cultural onboarding that really is heavy in the hands of, of HR. And as things progress, just the time frequency for HR check-ins lengthens and it becomes more of the hiring manager's responsibility. If I'm listening to this, this probably sounds pretty daunting where you are today, but where you are today wasn't where you were six, seven years ago when you first created your sales playbook. And if you could just talk to how big was the initials sales playbook, let's just sort of define it in pages. And then how much time, if you have actually taken the time to document or to figure out that you invest hours of company team members into creating the playbooks, reviewing the playbooks, essentially all these materials that result in the standardization that you have. Oh boy. I mean, you know, there was a lot of work that was done prior to the actual concept of a playbook. I mean, there were a lot of materials that we had developed over, you know, years and years. I wrote the first training manual back in 1990 or something. So we've just continued, but the problem is we had all these materials that were kind of spread across the organization and stored in folders all over the internet and everything, our company internet. And, and they just weren't pulled into one cohesive document. And so it, what we had to do is collect all that, scrub it, rewrite it, write new. And, and that's what took a lot of time. And so we also utilize an objectives management software that helps drive accountability and alignment in our management team. Which software so is that? It's called Rhythm System. Okay. And um, there's a whole process we go through, starting with kind of three to five year, you know, winning moves or mm -hmm. initiatives. And then we peel that back to a year. And then every quarter we have a plan that we load in and we status red, green, yellow, but it forces you to write success criteria for each of the company priorities that you put in place. Mm -hmm. So you know if you're successful in and that drives the behavior. Right. It's not me on a spreadsheet chasing people. Did you do this? Did you do that? Every week we meet and everybody has to status, whether that's red, green or yellow or super green for that matter. And if we're not getting the progress that we anticipate, then we shift up priorities. We put more resources to it if we think you know, that's what it requires. So it, it's a great tool to allow us to kind of modulate the amount of input and resources dedicated. And maybe there's something else that comes up that you didn't plan for. 
and you say, you know what, we're good. Let's just put that aside for the next couple of months. We'll get back to it. Everybody's on the same page. That's that alignment there. So that's what we use. And it's been very helpful for us. I think an operating system is so important. And I like the name because it really is a rhythm and cascades from that three to five year plan. If we are listening and we want to start creating playbooks, start organizing all these different training manuals and other documentation within our companies, where you were before, what would you tell a shop owner? How do you get started to become more standardized and put this in one place? And I really like the idea of creating quizzes too, but where's the starting point? Well, you got to pick a starting point. And I think it's defining first what it is you are trying to accomplish. So you create a framework or an outline of sorts. And then literally you just picking, you know, section by section off mm-hmm. and you, you just got to build one after another, after another. And I think if you look at the totality of what you're trying to accomplish at the beginning, it's daunting. And yes. just without prescribing to any sort of artificial deadline, I think just like in many things in life, it's chipping away, breaking it down into smallest, you know, problems and sections. And then realistically, what can you fit in your day, your week, your month, but make sure that you do a little bit all the time. You don't let two months go by, then you go crazy for a month. You've got to, to your point, a rhythm, you've got to have a staccato there that says, you know, we're going to get this done and we're going to write one procedure a week, Mm -hmm. one procedure every two weeks or whatever it is. But then you look and you cascade it as well down through the organization. So who else do you have on your staff? Engineers, quality you know, personnel, customer experience people. Don't do it all and put it on one head. Spread that out through the organization. You get better buy-in, you get better knowledge, and, and the whole thing just becomes richer in, in, you know, in the end product. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things I used to tell my team is they, I'd ask them, what's the secret to being rapid? And they'd all look at you and I'd say, it's pretty simple. You get started. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. it just, and what you were saying also reminds me of the other saying out there. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Exactly. Yeah. You also touched upon core values. When did you decide that the, the core values were probably within the company, but when did you decide to pull those out and put them where they became recognized and more formally part of the culture. And and tell us a little bit about that process. It really started with our lean journey. We worked with a a consultant at the time that had four quadrants. And one was about people, one was about quality systems, one was about lean tools, and the other was about measurement. So we just attacked one at a time and we decided that, determined that needs a basic level training in some of the tools that we we're going to implement and everything, but we really need to focus on the people side of things. So we involved the entire company in creating our first set of core values, hmm. which were teamwork, integrity, and quality. Okay. What makes okay. tick, right? And we've had two iterations since then where when we got into training and we also got an extremely diverse workforce, we found that we needed to be more descriptive and, and what it is we were trying to uh, instill in our employee and, and associate base. So, you know, it morphed to today, like I said, instead of trust, we flipped it to be trustworthy. Because if you are being trustworthy and everybody on the team is being trustworthy, then you have trust. Mm. Instead of telling someone else 
to trust you be trustworthy. So that's kind of the evolution, mm. but it started back then. And we went out to the floor and we asked for input and we created this whole continuous improvement program, but it started with those core values. And then in reading a lot of Jim Collins stuff and adopting some of his kind of philosophy around a core purpose and things that help unify the team around very specific, you know, kind of direction and guidepost is what I think is really important about that because this is our identity, guys. Not everybody can work within those parameters. It's not a place for everybody. It's a demanding environment because we expect that you be engaged, right? Yeah. You be engaged yeah. and you be part of what it is we're trying to build here. And not everybody can do that or wants to do that, right? So it's, there's a washout that can happen, but that's fine. You know, we move on from there and we realize we try to get it right on the front end of recruitment, but it, it is challenging sometimes. And until people are in there living it and being held to that standard, they might opt out themselves. So I think the core values are extremely important. And one of the questions that we would pose during the interview process is we would show them the core values and then ask them which one resonated most with them and why. And we we're constantly reinforcing the core values in that we trained or made, I guess, part of our standardization, although it was informal, that when you said good job to somebody, you tried to relate it to one of the core values and again, reinforce that what they were doing was following who the company was and they were really demonstrating it in that particular manner. So what would you say to a shop owner who doesn't have core values and is trying to decide whether or not to go through the effort to get those established for their shop? Well, I think you want to, especially in today's world, I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, just the past year or so, but the world has changed and people want to be invested. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think what's really important is pull your management team together, start with that and have a discussion. It took us a year to come up with our first set of core values Yeah, and multiple I, meetings. I remember lots, lots of meetings, lots of yeah, discussions. Yeah. Lots of discussions and wordsmithing and the whole deal. And so you go around and you ask people, what's important to you? What do you want in work culture? What do you want personally? What do you value? And you just try to pull that out, get all of this stuff on the surface, and then you start distilling it. And both what is truly important and, and, and in essence, because personally, I don't think some of these companies that have like 10 core values, uh, <laughs> I think it's a little bit tough to, to enforce that. So I think yeah. you've got to boil it down, get it concise, get it right, and then realize that you can, you know, just as we've done, you can enhance and improve on it. It doesn't have to be that way for the rest of the you know term of the, of the company's life. But I think it starts with a discussion, right? And asking what's important. What do we hold important? What's important to our customers? How does that relate to them? I think that's another important point that, that needs to be brought into that. Because if we do these and follow these core values, will that in fact produce more you know opportunity in business for us? Is that something that will resonate with customers? Mm -hmm. And we find that if we just stick to our knitting and truly have every team member fully invested in those core values and acting that way all the time, we can't be stopped. And that's why I say all the time, <laughs> everything that we're doing, it's really about those set of core values 
and focusing and enhancing that and then relating that to their specific jobs, to your point. Well, what does it mean to strive for excellence? Well, it means that you don't ever let this go by without, you know, without this mm-hmm. uh, process or whatever, you know, so you can relate it right down to the, the actual operation that people are working. It is so important also that, and I can tell that it starts from you and that it starts from the top down because if the owner, the CEO, president, if they don't believe it and follow those values, demonstrate those values, the other folks won't take it seriously. And you mentioned something, you walk around the floor, you see things, you recognize team members, associates personally. Just share a little bit about how that's part of your day and why you take the time to do so. You talked about inviting people into the plant to see what you're doing. And you think of Toyota and inviting their chief competitors in to look at their plant. It's much, much more challenging to execute on this. It starts with, you know, kind of a certain humility and approach to respecting everybody on the team and what contribution they're making. Mm-hmm. And personally, I wish I could do more of it because I don't think you can do enough of it. I don't think you can do too much of it, I guess, is, is, is my point. So I r- really try to make that personal connection with the employees. And I think over time, we have social you know, gatherings. Like we have a cookout every summer. I cook. Yes. So you know, I cook like 100 pounds of you know, sausages, tips, and chicken, and me and our, you know, the general manager. Mm-hmm. And we prepare all the food, right? You know, simple things like that. I'll go out and play hacky sack with some of the guys. And there's no there's no airs. You just go out there. You know people's names. You know, you take yeah. the time to say hi. It's not that that difficult. But it is a concerted effort, right? So we had a little festival like that during the summer at Rapid Sheet Metal the last few years. And we brought a dunk tank in. And myself <laughs> and the COO and our CFO got to sit in the dunk tank and everybody got three baseballs and <laughs> we got wet, but it, it was, yeah, those are the types of things that build the camaraderie. And again, starts from the top down. So yeah. one of the things that is really striking about Boston Centerless is the workforce development you've done. And as you said, you've become a leader in diversity, equity, inclusion, and you have a lot of different nationalities who have joined Boston Centerless. Can you just talk about, instead of, I guess, stealing talented folks, creating the skilled labor for your own shop and some of the ways that you look at that and approach that? Sure. So it's challenging to get people in. And I think, again, I think people, certain owners might have a misconception that we can't find skilled labor. We've never really taken that approach. We want people to come in with the, you know, appropriate soft skills, kind of get them onto the grid culturally, and then train them the technical aspects of the job. And it really happened kind of unconsciously. It's been almost 30 years now, I think, that we had our first Vietnamese worker join our team. And now our manufacturing floor has you know, a number of people from Vietnam. At this point, we're at 14 different nationalities. So One of the ways that we show that we appreciate and present a and work in an inclusive environment that everybody's respected is we hang a flag for the country of origin of any of our employees. So if you're from Bosnia, Cambodia, 
France, there's a flag hanging there for, for you. And we have 14 different nationalities represented. So that became much more conscious at that point. We have International Food Day. We have mm. different things to try to bring people together and, and kind of showcase their, their, their heritage and their individuality and celebrate that. We have really found that if we have good, talented people that are bilingual, we can tap into some of these communities where non-English speaking people, but very capable and competent, and they just need a chance to get in the door. Mm-hmm. We will provide them the English as a second language training, and we'll use these bilingual interpreters to translate what it is we're doing, both on the floor from technical standpoint and training standpoint, as well as some of the core values. So when I get up and meet in front of the entire organization or sometimes smaller groups, I will have an interpreter next to me. Also gone to the point of actually translating some of our recruiting materials into Vietnamese and Spanish and some of the key demographics in our area to attract people and really, you know, get them to recognize that this is a place for you. And what that's done is it's built an an incredible pride among some of these communities that they refer in friends and family. And they're almost like pre-vetted from that standpoint. And that really has built, you know, an incredible stable workforce for us. So we're constantly looking at new areas and new ways to attract people. We're not afraid of some of the challenges of bringing non-English speaking people in or people from different backgrounds and bringing them on. Because at the end of the day, as long as you're working within our core values, it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from. We're all part of that same movement going forward. So, And you are investing in them. You are giving them skills that gives them the opportunity to make more money than flipping burgers down the street, for instance. And absolutely. And if you're not treating them right, there's lots of shops who would probably be happy to hire them. I love what you're doing there and giving folks a chance because we saw the same thing at Rapid is there were, there were so many hungry, smart, talented people where English was not a first language and it was looked at as a barrier by many potential employers beyond just manufacturing. And for us, it was rather an opportunity. Absolutely. Anything else you want to add on the culture, the philosophy of how you run the business and what it means to Boston Centerless? I truly want to provide opportunity. To me, when I see somebody start as a custodian and now they're running half the shop and they're driving in a new BMW, I think, you know, I take some joy in that. And we've seen a number of those success stories over the last, you know, 30 years, 30 plus years that I've been involved. And to me, that's fantastic. I really want to build something and I want people to feel that energy. It's a great way to attract you know, the best and brightest. And so we're constantly looking at knocking down the next barrier, you know, and, uh, and never really resting on our laurels. So kudos to you. I so admire what you've done and I encourage, encourage any shop owner. There's a lot of actually great materials that whether directly or indirectly, just demonstrate on your website, what, what you guys are all about. And mm-hmm. it's worthwhile just to go on to Boston Senators' website and get a sense of some of that stuff. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and your business model, what you are really selling is 
the eliminating the variability of bar material. And I love the tagline that you have, can't find skilled labor, use skilled material. That's genius. <laughs> so you guys are producing extremely tight tolerances. First of all, what does that mean? In the Swiss type screw machine process, there's something called a rotating bushing. And, and that sits out in front of the collet, which is gripping the material. And if you have an out of round or variation in that diameter, you've got to create, because you can't clamp down there, you've got to leave more clearance so that it doesn't get hung up on high spots. So you've got to basically go mm. to the highest point of common denominator, but then you have literal slop in that rotating bushing, which causes vibration. It causes all sorts of problems from tooling and holding size and everything else. So the more accurate that bar is, the more you can kind of clamp down, the more rigid that is, the consistency that you can build in your processes around knowing that that is always going to be right is a game changer, really. And so I think a lot of customers, our biggest challenge is educating our customers mm -hmm. as to what those benefits are. And that is not to say that our customers aren't knowledgeable and don't do a great job. But I don't know that people understand the benefits there. I'll give you one example. We were doing work with a dental manufacturer and they were buying three tenths total tolerance. Okay. So plus or minus a tenth and a half mm -hmm. um, for these dental titanium dental implants. And they were running 55 machines and they would run unattended at night, but they'd only get about three or four hours between the tool sensors would shut the machines down. And we went in and proposed that we would cut that tolerance in half. So we would hold a total tolerance of one and a half tenths and 50 millionths rounds. And it was skeptical, but we did risk-free trials. It took about probably six months, to be honest with you, before they fully had gone through all of their testing and trialing. But they were able to run those 55 machines a full eight-hour shift. So if you gain four hours per machine times 55 every single night, I don't care how much the material costs. They were blown away, right? And I have a number of these types of examples and it's getting people to take the time. Everybody's super busy to do that kind of demo or experiment and utilizing and taking advantage of what that consistency is. But I'll tell you something, Jay, it is so much more than just on that job. You talked about reducing variability. <laughs> if you make the commitment that you're going to buy material that you truly can rely on to be at that level. You can build your organization around that consistency and that reliability. And what I mean by that is that the staffing all the way through engineering, quality, lead people, the skill level of the operators, all that can change because you've now got input material on your machines that doesn't require the same level of intervention you gain time, but you also, with that confidence, you can remove large chunks of cost by putting engineers, for instance, on new programs, new improvements, different ways to do things instead of just firefighting all the time. That's just kind of one example. So it's really taking that approach that says, I'm going to remove the variability on this front end. And we've seen this time and again with the most successful companies that we deal with is like that is one element we're just not going to worry about. Right. And we're going to base it on that. And that's not optimizing every 
job in every element. And people say, well, I can't afford the customer won't. You can build that in and you can change how you structure your estimating and cost analysis because now you don't have to put the same level of overhead or time or material handling or downtime on the machine into your quotes. At the end of the day, we find that it pays for itself in this. And that's why we've been enabled to grow pretty much every year. So there's something to that. It's my understanding as well that you will get a longer tooling life on average when you have the type of material you're supplying versus looser tolerance material. That yeah, there's... and I think the biggest thing is the predictability. Yeah. So you will know that, okay, I can, you know, I used to get 100 parts, then I'd get 250, then I'd get 80 out of a tool yes. edge. And if you know that you can get 300 every time, you can, you know, change it at 270 and every single time that's how it will work, right? Right. And you just don't have to think about that. You don't have to create processes within your company to handle the different quantities that have to be changed out or when the tooling and all the reordering, as you've said before, there's so many things that now become consistent, become standard. You can create a playbook around your material. It, It enables you to structure those operations and put What I always tried to do was automate the rote so that the people could invest their time in the things where their skills could be put into play Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, data entry is a huge point, doesn't relate to this material. But there are so many ways that you just want to take out variability and let them focus on the things that can't be eliminated. It's no doubt. And there are plenty of companies out there that can supply even to the tolerances that we do, but they don't do it every time. They do it 70% of the time. They do it 75 So you can't take right. the leap into knowing that it's going to be right. So you don't take any cost up. We have customers that say all the time, well, I can't afford that. My retort is you can't afford not to do it. Right. Yeah. Well, your, competitor, like, yeah, your you competitors are doing it. Yeah, but you can't find people. Right. So if you can have one guy run three machines instead of two, yes. or, for instance, or you can put a lower entry level person on there because it's so stable. Yes. You don't have to have such a skilled person that knows how to intervene and, and you know, dial in and, and do all that. It just changes the dynamics tremendously. What this really is, is 21st century thinking and 21st century mindset. This is how you become a better, more efficient manufacturer is by reducing variability and We did a lot of it through software automation, but the basic material, every part needs some sort of material. And for your customers, you might as well take that variable out and and get the consistent R material. You would mention vendor managed inventory and you wrote an article, which actually was just published today. What is vendor managed inventory and why does it make sense for your customers? And how does a machine shop copy this? I think what we're looking at is cost through the supply chain. And we want our customers to really not have to worry about getting the material exactly right, exactly when they need it. And so if we can build a Kanban system to provide material to your shop floor within 24 hours, we now have the capabilities. So we also can go in and look at your portfolio of products that you're purchasing. Mm -hmm. We can make suggestions on product consolidation. So you can reduce the number of calls and pushings that you need because you can optimize sizes. Our knowledge of what 
is readily available in the marketplace or through our inventory, which is to provide multiple customers off of one SKU, you might not recognize that and realize you're asking us to take a product and grind 30 or 50 thousandths off when if you change that and, and go to a, a nominal or just below a nominal, not only will you reduce the cost, but you'll shorten your lead time and availability because it's something that we already stock. So it's really partnering from that perspective to understand what your demand is and then looking to optimize that and then deliver it in a way that gives you the lowest supply chain cost to your door. I mean, we have customers where we will literally deliver right to their machines because they've built that level of trust. They don't have incoming inspection. They don't have any of that. It goes right to the machine and they're off. So when we talk about vendor managed inventory, it's, it's us taking over that responsibility. A lot of our customers and dealing with these purchasing departments, they are swamped. Mm-hmm. and they need to just keep stuff flowing. And if we can take that load off, and once again, they have the confidence that it's going to be done and done right, and oh, by the way, maybe save us costs, that's what we try to provide. I see two of your core values, at least here. Take initiative, yeah. and you are being trustworthy. So I like it. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. What I think has been so impactful is that you shared so many ideas and mindsets and action stories and running and growing a successful shop and something that any shop owner can copy big or small cnc swiss screw or machining castings dynamite stuff here your success is a testament to being so people focused really appreciate you taking the time to sharing that and is there anything we missed anything else you want to add and make sure our audience is thinking about. You know, Jay, first off, thank you for having me on and allowing me this opportunity to just share some of what we do and hold dear to our heart here in running our our business. I I would just leave that there's great opportunity in all the years I've been involved. I've never seen a more pro-manufacturing environment than we're in right now, particularly from the public sector. So American manufacturing, I have been yelling as many (laughs) shop owners have at the top of our lungs for decades to pay attention to us. Well, I think we have some of that attention. Don't waste it. Believe in it. Invest in your people. Anybody can buy equipment. It's going to come down to how you work with your people, how you build them and train them. And that's going to provide the kind of success when it comes to execution. But I think we're in a really unique time right now in our industry. I just leave it with one other thing. And that is think about the industry as a whole. Don't be so myopic that if it doesn't directly benefit your organization, you're not going to spend time. I've donated, I can't tell you how many hours to the greater good. And I do it because I believe in the industry. I believe in the people in the industry. And it can't be done with just a select few. We're all chipping in and we can really move this forward and do some great things. I'll echo that. And it is certainly worthwhile to do that for the industry. But I'll bet that by engaging with the people you have and with no intention to learn and get ideas that have made your shop better, just those engagements have done so. And it's the serendipity of that chance conversation with someone who is different than you, is in a different role in manufacturing, or maybe not in manufacturing, maybe in education or something like that. That's where some of the gems come from that you can incorporate into your shop and keep 
continually improve. And if you're putting yourself out there, believe me, people see it and they yeah. come to you, you know, they got a new training program. They have new people. They're yes. trying to push people your way. So you do get the benefit. Yeah. It's and that's not, not, it's not why you want to do it, but no. it's not just a one-way street. No. And what I'm saying is each action doesn't have a direct result. Yes. But that overall activity will result in improvements in your own organization. But it's important if we're all doing that, we're all pushing the, uh, the industry forward, which helps everybody. So, Yes. Well, how can people reach you, Steve, if they want to get in touch with you and learn more about Boston Centerless? You know, thank you for, for putting that out there. My email address is just first initial, last name, S-Tamasi, T-A-M-A-S-I at bostoncentralist.com. Phone number here is 781-994-5142. And as I mentioned, I offer this. I have conversations all the time from a networking perspective and are willing to do plant benchmarking tours for lean manufacturing or some of the things that we're doing. If you want to benchmark and take note of some of the tools that we've put in place, training materials and things of that nature, I will offer that to anybody to come in and, and, and take advantage of that. That's really generous. Thank you for putting that out there. Absolutely. Well, audience, this has been a really good show. Lots of nuggets in here with Steve talking about the way he approaches running his business. My question to you, my ask of you is what mindset are you going to resolve to copy after listening to Steve? How many different nationalities and flags could you raise in your shop? Are you bemoaning the fact that there's a lack of skilled labor or are you doing something about it and creating it yourself? Good stuff to think about. Until next time, keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Have a super day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.